The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. Today, we will discuss what it is to photograph in Antelope Canyon. Exactly. Many, many years ago, once upon a time, I was sheep herding, and it was a very hot summer day. And one of the sheep went into the canyon far, far away. I was scared. Didn't know what was in the darkness. I followed the footprints and the little bah, bah, looking for me. I continued down the canyon, and this beautiful sunbeam of light came down, and I could see this beautiful light shaft. I had never seen one before. That's how it worked. <laughs> Maybe the first time somebody found it, right? <laughs> They say there's a, a story of a Navajo grandmother looking for her sheep. Yeah, that's in what they say. Upper Antelope Canyon. Yeah, who knows? It's a good story. That's all that matters. <laughs> the Navajos love stories. Yeah, everything it's, has a story. It's an oral tradition yeah. with the Native Americans. And somebody told me that they think it helps them remember because they don't forget things. They recall things, and they wonder if it comes from the oral traditions, from the elders, and telling stories from generation to generation. Now, different types of the reservation, they may change the stories a little bit, but I think the core values or the meaning of the story pretty much remains the same. Yeah, if you don't write it down, you have to remember it. Right. Otherwise, it gets lost. And I think each storyteller brings a part of themselves into the story. Yeah, we change the story a yeah, little bit. They have to make it yeah. part of them when they mm. tell the story, I think. Yeah, there's interpretation. Yeah. It's a little bit like uh, if you say something to your neighbor around the table and they repeat it to their neighbor, and by the time it comes back to you, it's entirely different. Yes. I think that maybe a little bit. Not exactly, but there's no doubt that when we learn the stories... They tell them slightly differently. Oh, yeah. Well, I think you bring your experiences, yeah. your own personal experiences into it. Maybe it's the smells or the sounds or it can, what you see. You know, it can be a number of things. Whatever attracts you. Yes. Whatever your particular interest is. Yes. Yeah. And I think we've heard sometimes the same stories told by different people, and it's a different story. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. So let's start with Antelope Canyon from the time that we first went there because it's a place that's extremely well-known among photographers. It's very popular with tourists also now. But uh, when we first went there, it wasn't known. And personally, the first time I went there was 1986. Right. And at the time, nobody quite knew much about it. I don't even remember how I learned about it. Somebody gave me some idea about where it was, and I parked my car along the road and started walking and uh, oh, really? found uh, the canyon. And I went down as far as I could. Uh, I did not have any ropes. And, of course, there was no ladders back then. And uh, I got to the first drop-off. That was lower antelope, you know, that, because it's closer to the road. And uh, I was stuck. There was no way down without a rope. And so I went out and I went around and tried to find a way in from the side. And then eventually I went all the way to the other end, the bottom of it. And I tried to go up, and there was a rope there. And so I climbed up, and uh, I was able to go into the chamber at the bottom of Antelope. 
the that big a, chamber the at the very chamber. end yeah. of the ladders, yeah. where the ladders were And it's made. a difficult climb because there was a very long rope. I was with my mother and my sister, and my sister did not want to go up there, even though she could have climbed. So I went by myself. And I had the little lake at Ciel, and I took some photographs, and I still like them. I mean, I did black and white. Those were the first photographs of Antelope, and I still like them. I was going to ask you if it was black and white. Yeah, because I carried the Ciel. That's the, the camera that I had with me when I went up because it was a very small camera. Lightweight. Lightweight, and I did not know if I could get in there, so I just took that. Right. Well, compared to the 4 by 5 it was lightweight. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so I took some photographs handheld in Lower Antelope, and I still like them. They were still uh, pretty good photographs at the time. So was that later on when you realized you needed some ropes? Is that when you and your friend Robert decided well, to do it again later yeah, on? Yeah, what happened is the first time that I was there, I actually met some other people. There was another couple, and we were all in the same boat. We all were staring down thinking, God, what is there? to see what's down in there. Right. But we couldn't get in there because we had no ropes. So we went back, and I can't remember when, really. This is uh, a long time ago. But I went back with ropes and with uh, pythons, you know, bolts. Oh, yes. And uh, carabiners to attach the ropes to the wall. And we were able to go all the way through. And then I went back with uh, friends from school. You know, Robert was one of them. He was one of the friends that I had from NAU. And, uh, you know, we would go through the whole thing. And I went there several times. Every time it was a different situation. Sometimes there was some rope. Sometimes there was none. Sometimes there was some bolts. I mean, we had what we needed, but sometimes we had to use more or less. It depended on who had been there before. So the canyon had been traveled through. You know, there was bolts. There was people leaving ropes. You know, there was toe holes, hand holes, you know, things to help you go up and down. But it still was challenging, of course. But what I did... uh, is I would camp at the head of Antelope. And back then, there was a trailer park there. And the people that lived in the trailer park were workers for the Navajo Generating Station, you know, the power plant with the three big smokestacks. They lived in that area, just at the head of Antelope Canyon, at the head of Lower Antelope. And so there was a bunch of trailers. And, uh, you know, I would park my car, and I would sleep, actually. Uh, in the back of the truck? Yeah, in, at the head of Antelope, yeah. They did not mind. Wow. And, uh we would go through the canyon, you know, all day long. Right. And I remember that at one point we actually timed ourselves how fast we could go from the top of Antelope, of Lower Antelope, to the bottom, to the last chamber. And it took us about 15, 20 minutes. Wow. And, of course, we did not photograph. We would just run through it. Right. You know, and that's with ropes. And then we would come back. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hot, and uh, the Navajos were looking at us thinking we were nuts. There were snakes down in there. We found a rattlesnake one time. The snakes like these slot canyons because they are cool. And they're caves, you know, and they like to go in there. But when they get stuck in there, they can't come out. Right. And so you find them at the bottom and there's nothing to eat. And, you know, they just want to get out of there. But they don't necessarily know how, you know. They seek the coolness, but then they get stuck. The Navajos had no idea why we went in there. For them, it was just a canyon and it was the place where evil spirits lived. You know, they were afraid of it. They would never have gone in there by themselves. And so the change with today is phenomenal because now they go in there as tour guides. I mean, they are in there all day long. Well, now they teach others how to photograph Antelope Canyon now. They'll teach them, you know, how to get Mm -hmm. the colors or where to point the camera. Yeah. They even know the settings now. You know, when we first started teaching workshops there in 2003, they didn't know the settings for the camera and... 
Of course, we had no idea. Nobody right. knew exactly what to do. And that was lower antelope. So the first one that I explored was lower antelope. And then somebody told me that there was another one which is known as the upper antelope. And uh, back then there was a road and it was very sandy. You know, yes. that's the road we still take today. It's at basically at the bottom of the wash. You just follow the wash up. But I did not have the right car. And so we would go in there and I had thin tires. I had two-wheel drive and we would get stuck all the time. Right. And so we would start driving and get stuck and then leave the car and walk and make it to Upper somehow, you know, in one way or another. I don't remember actually driving all the way to Upper. Eventually, we let go of the cars, and we would just hike all the way. Wow. Yeah. It took hours. And we did not know when was the right time for the light or the wrong time or what the light shaft was. So we would go in there at whatever time, and we would wander around. Right. And uh, we had 4 by 5 or whatever camera we had, you know, medium format. And I remember one time we were in there photographing with a friend, and uh, a Navajo came upon us because the Navajos went in there to party at the time. They'd go in there to drink and party and it's cool like down in the shade. air conditioning. It was natural air conditioning. Summer. I mean, when you look at the desert, you want to be at the it's bottom so of a slot canyon, especially upper because upper is flat. Right. And so you have no problem walking in. They did not go into lower because of the drop-offs. Right. But upper being flat, we would go in there and we would cool down. And so here we are photographing, doing long exposures. We would do 15, 20-minute exposures in there. And this Navajo came upon us and got scared and looked at us. He, he thought we were a ghost, you know. And he asked us, what did you do? What are you doing? Why are you here? And we told him, we're here to photograph. And he looked around and he was like, photograph for what? He did not get it, you know. Right. Like I said, you know, the change with today, where now they tell you how great it is to photograph and what to photograph and where to point your lens and all of that. This is not traditional Navajo knowledge. No, <laughs> you know? no. This is knowledge required because people have shown such a high level of interest. Oh, now they can tell you exactly yeah. what time a light shaft will start and yeah. end at certain places throughout the canyon. And they know everything. They do. And, of course, we did not know when the light shafts were. And the first time that I actually saw what is now known as a light shaft was in upper where I saw a spot of light on the ground and that spot of light would move. And so we photographed the spot of light. Right. We did not know that if we threw sun in the air, we would have a light shaft. And right. so we didn't. And we completely blew it. There was no knowledge of what to do. And so we actually missed some opportunities just because of lack of knowledge. And the challenge at the time was not knowing what was going on, not knowing the light, not knowing about shaft of light, not knowing about uh, air light. I right. remember the first time that I captured air light, I had a photograph, uh, it was in lower, that was very blue. There was a particular rock that was bright blue, pure blue. And uh, we kept going back thinking that it was the particular spot that yes. I had photographed that gave the color. We did not know that the blue came from the light. Right. And we could not get it again. Because yeah. we were never there at the right time. We were probably you know. there at different times of the day or year. Yeah. Or, and so I would know. photograph the same spot, the same exact location, and I would get orange or I would get red or I would get browns, uh, but I wouldn't get blue. Right. You know? And I remember one time we went there in the winter, in December, and I got purples. Yes, I remember seeing purples for the yeah, first time. For the first and I was time. like, wow. And we had no idea what was causing the purple. Right. And right. now we know that it was a combination of air light and bounce light. Reflected so you have light. blue and red and you get purple. But all of that was sort of a hit and miss thing. It was an accident. If it worked, great. If it did not work, we had no clue what to do. Right. And if we had known, we would have come back an hour later or come back in the morning or come back in the afternoon or come back at noon. 
and we would have got it every time. And now we know, and that's what we do, but back then there was no knowledge. And so in those days, the challenge was really the lack of knowledge of light, the lack of knowledge of uh, the location, the lack of knowledge of uh, how to get in there. I mean, these flood canyons were not known. Right. And there's countless of them, because when I started hiking to Upper Antelope, because it was so far, sometimes I started taking some side canyons. And I explored and discovered some canyons that I haven't been back to for a long time. I remember I had a friend from Colorado that we would meet at Antelope Canyon, and then we would explore the desert together. He was a photographer. And one day I told him, I said, I'm just going to hike this way. And I got sort of sidetracked, and I ended up walking all the way to a mesa, really far away. I must have walked three, four, five miles. And I found another slot canyon. I went all the way to the end until I couldn't hike anymore. And when I came back, he was panicked. He told me, he says, I was ready to call the police. I thought you just got lost or run out of water and passed out. Right. <laughs> he, he was like, you know, I'm glad I found you. He, he was just ready to go to the police station. and Right. And this was before for, cell phones existed, yeah. you know. Yeah, we had no means of contact. And he was ready to send a search and rescue team. And I told him, he said, don't do it again. I'm like, well, listen, hey, listen, uh, you know, it's me. You know, I do what I want. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was bizarre. And the whole idea with Antelope is that it's always been hard. It's difficult now because, uh, obviously, now there is a lot of people going there. So there is a lot of uh, visitors, a lot of photographers, a lot of guides. And that makes it difficult because you have to sort of know how to do it without uh, being disturbed by all the other people. Right. But back then, it was just as difficult for other reasons, because we did not know the light, we did not know when to be there, we did not know the equipment either. No. We had slow film, we had big cameras, we had heavy tripods, we had to hike through the desert with all of that, then set up and have 15-minute exposures. And Now we photograph handheld with high-speed cameras that have very good uh, ISO noise. You know, I mean, I shoot in there now handheld with something like 8,000 ISO, so I don't have to worry about shake or all of that and get rid of the noise, whatever is left uh, in Lightroom. So it's a different challenge. Well, I know when I first started going with you in the late 80s, probably around 88, I always thought it was an adventure, Going into lower. I had never been to upper. I think the first time I went to upper was when you created the antelope light dance. I think that was actually my very first time in upper. So that must have been in 1999 when I actually threw the sand. Yeah, what happened with upper is that at some point they closed the road. And they did not close it because of photographers. There was very few people going in there to photograph. They closed it because people would go in there and party you know, Navajos. They would have parties in there. And I was friend with the security guard at the Navajo Generating Station. Oh, yes. I was very good friend with him. He was Hopi. He was not Navajo. And he lived in the trailer park at the head of Lower Antelope. And uh, from his guard station at the power plant, he could see the mouth of Upper Antelope. He could see yeah. what? He could see the mouth of it. Because the power plant being higher up with binoculars, you can see the mouth of a parental. And he said one night he was looking at it with binoculars and he counted something like 20 trucks going up there. Wow. And there was a murder. They got totally drunk and somebody got killed. They got into a fight, you know, a drunkard fight. And uh, at that point, the police came, uh, they did an investigation, and then they just closed the road. And you couldn't go anymore. After that, I did not go for a number of years because of that. Right. Wow. And so we started going back again when that sort of quieted down and uh, 
We did not reopen the road, but we started walking instead of driving. Right. We found ways around it also. There was another entrance. Eventually, that other entrance got closed as well. It's always been a challenge. People now say, oh, my God, it's difficult because there's so many people going in there. Well, that's true. But before, it was difficult for other reasons. It's never been easy. It's not an easy location. It's not exactly like the Grand Canyon where you can go to the edge, set up your camera, and just wait for sunset. It's, right, <laughs> right. It's not easy to access. Once you're in there, it's not easy to figure out what to do. Well, I know during our workshops when we go to lower, I have my little places where I sit. And somebody was watching me, and they said, well, you know all the places to sit. And I said, well, I've spent a lot of hours in lower more than upper, many, many hours and lower all day long. We used to bring a picnic lunch and just sitting there and watching the light and watching you photograph because you were using four by five, it took a lot longer. So I would just sit there and just look at the canyon and watch the canyon and just uh, enjoy just being there. Yeah, we actually went to lower much more than upper. Actually, Robert... uh, Never went to Upper. The only person that I went with was this person from Colorado. Or, you know, you later on in 1989, but I think we took a tour there. We had somebody guiding us. It was just too much of a hike. I mean, it's a three-mile hike. Yeah, I never wanted to do that. And it's sandy. And it's hot. It's hot. It's hard to walk. I mean, walking in the sand, it's very deep sand. So It wasn't easy. No, we would go there... Very rarely, actually, because of the challenges. And you could never get there at the right time because, you know, the time for hiking, even if you start early, just blow the schedule, you know. So lower was easy to access. And the other thing we did was look for other canyons. There's a lot of them. We did not find them all because it's a maze of dirt roads. A lot of them are behind Hogan's. Right. They close the gates. They put up fences. Uh, they don't help you, you know. I mean, they live there, you know, what do you want? They, right. they are not interested in people uh, trespassing on their property. Right, they didn't like us yeah. going behind their trailers and yeah. going into Antelope Canyon. Yeah, but I remember we used to take trash out of there, too. Well, because the Navajos would so throw their trash in Lower Antelope. We would it, you know, it was a good place to make the trash disappear. There was tires down in there, there was baby diapers, there was beer cans. It's not to say that they are dirty, but they see a hole in the ground, they throw their trash in there. You know, it's that simple. You know, there was nobody to tell them any better. I remember uh, after sunset, we would sit around with Navajos in the trailer park and uh, drink beer and uh, throw the beer cans, you know, in the desert. And then uh, the next morning, an old grandma would come up and pick them up and recycle them, get a few dollars for the tea I think at first, when you told me that story, you were shocked that they throw it. And they said, no, 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 it's okay, because, you know, somebody's going to come pick them up tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I was... Yeah, everything's okay, don't worry. Yeah, I was like, isn't that uh, a little... Maybe we shouldn't do that. Disrespectful. They're like, no, no, somebody's Mm going to come and pick them up. I was like, you're nuts, you know. (laughs) But, yeah, she came. And she picked them up, and the more you throw, the better it was for her. Right. right. So it, there was a sort of logic, a strange logic, you know. But it was a different time. I mean, all the roads around Page were open. I mean, Lone Rock, right, was a party place also. Oh yes. Oh goodness. Not uh, for the Navajos, but for the local teenagers. For the locals, it was insane. Because I mean, we would camp at Lone Rock, and yes. all night long, the ATVs or the pickup trucks driving would try around to go, our tent. 
It was like a it circus, was. you know. It was. And then they would try to climb the hills around Lone Rock and get stuck at the top or make it two-thirds of the way and then roll backwards. Oh, yeah. My fear was is that some of those big trucks were going to drive right over the tent because they couldn't see us in the dark. That yeah. was my concern, yeah. was being in a tent and having a truck hit us. Especially because it, it was not safe. Yeah. It was not safe at all. And I now Lone that. Rock is a campground and there is a ranger station and you have to pay a fee and if you start to misbehave the way they did, you would be arrested by the police. Oh, so yeah. it's changed a lot. It has changed yeah. a lot. I used to be concerned about sleeping out there at yeah. Lone Rock. Well, Page know. was a pretty rowdy town. Yeah, I mean, a was. lot of people, their way of uh, blowing uh, steam was to go out in the desert and four-wheel drive wherever they could. Right. Everybody had a big uh, Ford truck or Chevy or GMC and they would tear up the desert. You know? Yes, literally yeah, tear literally, up the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and we did yes. not go too much on the reservation because I think no. the Navajos were not particularly friendly with that. But they would go all around Lake Powell. Yes, they, would they go. did. I remember one time where Lake Powell's water level dropped significantly. We saw a pickup truck in the rocks that are actually way out. Oh, yeah, they in, wanted to see how far they could drive out there. Yeah, and they, they yeah. wanted to cross the lake, yes. which we couldn't, but they got all the way into these rocks that you can see in the distance, yes. almost in the middle of the lake. Yeah, yeah because well, like, there was enough they get land. Out there? Yeah, there was enough dry land to drive all the way to that. Right. We were like, how did they make it there? Well, when there's a wheel, there's a wheel. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it was really a place for exploration, and yes. uh, we did a lot of it. And uh, photography was part of it, but it was both exploration and photography. It was. Yeah. It was. A but we bit, got some good photographs, time. regardless. We would go to Alstrom Point. We did not know what we know now, you know. We would go there, we would camp, I would see the sunrise, I would make coffee, and then walk to the point. And by then, the sun was too high to get the best light, but it did not really bother me, you know. Oh, yeah. I wasn't fully aware that you have to get up in the dark and set up before the sun is up. We weren't even thinking that way. I mean, it never even entered our heads to get up before the sun came up. Right. We just slept in and made some cream of wheat in the morning and some coffee and... By the time we ever started, it must have been 11 a.m. or 12 noon. <laughs> well, I remember one time I slept at uh, Alstrom Point with this guy from Colorado that we photographed with. And uh, he got up before sunrise. And I didn't. I was sleeping soundly. And he eventually came back and said, I can't let you sleep through that. You're going to get up. You're going to get up. And <laughs> it's too good for you to sleep through that. Right. And he was really pissed off. And Because I, he understood light. Because he understood light. And I got up and I took some photographs and they were pretty darn good. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because I was at sunrise, you know. Yeah. But if it had not been for him... I would not have but I remember, yeah. you know, once you and I learned about light, I remember going to Grand Canyon and hiking miles in the darkness, getting up at 4 a.m. with a headlamp at um, Cape Final and some of those. I don't know if it was two miles or four miles, but I remember us walking in the dark before right. sunrise to get there. Well, by then you we know. had understood what good light is. Oh, yeah. And we knew that you have to get up in that case, a good hour before sunrise, hike there, set up, and wait. Right. And then if something happens, then you're there and you're ready. And you never know if it's going to happen or not, but, you know, there's no other way. In the past, if I saw something good, then I would set up. If I did not, then I would not set up. I did not really conceive of having to wait. Right. Yeah. 
So there's been tremendous changes, but um, the challenges are still there. They're just different. Yes, it's, I agree. Now everybody knows that you have to be there at certain times of the day, whether it's sunrise or sunset, whether it's inside antelope at noon to get the light shafts because that's when the sun is straight overhead and the light will shine all the way to the bottom. We know that we have to throw sand in the air to get light shafts. We know that air light happens when you have blue sky and nothing else. I mean, our knowledge is extensive. Oh, yes, and we know that in the wintertime, November, December, you get beautiful mauves. Right. The most beautiful. That comes from the fact that the sun is very low. Yes. And so you get both air light and bounce light. Right. Which I really uh, liked because that's when I realized that you get all the oranges and browns when the light shafts are coming down because there's so much light that's being Mm. bounced back or reflected onto the walls. But when you go there in November and December and you don't have the light going straight down into the canyon, you get some beautiful colors, colors that I had never seen before. Yeah, exactly. And to me, the whole story of Antelope Canyon, which in a sense follows my personal story about learning how to understand the light, how to photograph these locations, is sort of a representative of the journey that people make through photography. But now the journey is different because a lot of them come to these locations having read my books or having studied in one way or another, or they come on a workshop and we teach them how to do it. And so they have a leg up in a way. They come with their first visit knowing more than we ever knew. Oh, yes. I mean, it took us, you know, a good 10, 15 years to learn all of that, and we can learn it uh, sometimes in a few hours or sometimes know before, right? And the challenge now is not so much that as much as it's how to create a photograph that's different from everybody else. Right. In the beginning, if you could go into Antelope and get a properly exposed photograph that was sharp, you won the game. Right. And if you had a good composition, I mean, you had a winner. And nobody knew where it was. Nobody knew where it was. And nobody understood how to photograph it. And so if you could get in there, get a good photograph, good composition, good light, you had a winner. Now, getting in there is not an issue. Knowing what to do is not an issue. Understanding the light is not an issue. The real challenge now has become to take a photograph that is different and that is better than everybody else. The bar has been raised. Yes, and it has uh, been raised. that's basically starting from a different point, you know, a different point of departure. Right. Well, I think photographers that visit Antelope Canyon now, they expect to get a killer light shaft or a killer image their very first visit, which took us many, many, many years to learn. Right, yeah. But if everybody's getting the same shot, then it doesn't have as much value as it did back then. That's true. And don't get it wrong. A good photograph is still hard to get. Oh, yes. Regardless of the level of knowledge, because there is uh, many other things besides knowing where to go, knowing how to do it, knowing the light and so on. There's still the artistic aspects. There's still the ability of doing a good Personal style. Personal style, the use of color. Right. And then all the things that you can do in Photoshop and in Lightroom. Right. To transform an image. Exactly. and, And I remember, and it's not just limited to Antelope Canyon. I remember you telling some of the workshop participants on the Navajo land workshop where you're like, yeah, pretty much everybody takes a good image of Monument Valley with the mittens. Now, take an exceptional image, right. an image that's going to blow everybody away. Yeah, well, Monument Valley is, if you have a camera and you point it towards the mittens, it's pretty hard to get a bad photo. It is. Especially if you're it there is. at sunrise or sunset. Absolutely. 
photograph. But the question is, how do you take an extraordinary photograph? Yes. And I think today, something that a lot of people don't quite understand is the importance of post-processing. A lot of people are still using the film paradigm in which everything was done at the time of shooting, you know, in the camera. The exposure, the composition, none of that could be changed with film. Right. You know, you had to have a properly exposed photograph, you had to have a good composition, and if you didn't, there was only a small amount that you could do right. to change uh, things. You know, you couldn't really compensate for over-under-exposure, you couldn't compensate for bad composition, you couldn't distort the image, you couldn't stretch it, warp it, uh, you couldn't merge different photographs together, you know, if you did not have the field of view that you want. And they still go with this concept that they have to get it right. And, you know, the expression getting a good shot. It doesn't matter to me anymore whether I get a good shot or not. What matters is that I have information that I have in order to do something in the computer. And it's just a starting point. It's just a starting it's point. It's a beginning. I'm right. gathering data. Right. And, of course, you have to expose it properly and you have to compose it properly. But if you have some shortcomings, you know, if it's slightly underexposed or overexposed, if you need to have several photographs merged together, if the composition is not right, I can warp the image, I can merge it, I can compensate for shadow and highlight recovery, on and on and on. I mean, it's endless. You know? right. A lot of my photographs today would not be good with film. Because I'm not shooting the same way that I used to. With film, I had to get everything right in the camera, which means I spent, with 4x5, something like 20 minutes getting the shot ready, composing, calculating the exposure, making sure I had the right uh, focal length, the right uh, focus point also to get hyperfocal, to get everything sharp. Now it doesn't matter. I can do all of that in different photographs and merge them. You know? right. So I can work much faster, and oh. I work much faster. And I it's really funny because I look at people when we do workshops and they look at me and they're like, how can you get a good shot? And I'm like, well, just wait until I'm done, until you see the final result. Right. Because there is so much that I do afterwards that eventually the original capture is not all that important. Right. And that's something which is still underused. And it is. Essentially because people don't feel permitted to transform their image. Well, I think that's part of it. But I also think that taking art classes also opens your mind. And I think that if you can't think of certain things that you can do, then you, you have no idea what you can do. Well, that's you true. But, I mean, I think I had that art knowledge before. What has changed is that I let go of a lot of things that had to do with film. Right. I'm not following the film paradigm. No, you're not. I don't have in my mind the goal of getting it right in the camera. Right. I have to get certain things right because certain things cannot be changed. But uh, there's a lot of things that can be changed afterwards and I make full use of it. And I think that's the main difference. Because to me, art is a transformation of reality. So I know I'm not doing documentation. So whether or not what I have in the final image exists in reality or doesn't, is not a problem, and I don't care. If somebody says, oh, my God, this does not exist, I went there and it's completely different, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, that's totally true. Right. But my goal is not to document Antelope Canyon or document Monument Valley or document the Grand Canyon or whatever location it is that I photograph. My goal is to express my personal vision of those places, and I make full use of it. And I can perfect the composition to a point where I did not you know, get to with film. I could not get to it. Right. A lot of the things that I would do in 4x5 by basically using the 4x5 movements, you know, the shift or the tilt or all of that, now I do it in Photoshop. Right. And I go further because you can actually stretch the image, warp it, 
much more than you could with 4 by 5 It wasn't unusual for you to spend 45 minutes underneath that yeah. dark cloth. I mean, I remember sitting there watching you. And, and it was and satisfying when I got a good result, mm-hmm. but it was also frustrating because there was a limit. Right. And I remember situations where I could never quite get what I wanted because the camera just wouldn't do it. You mm-hmm. know, you can only s- distort the image so much with 4 by 5 And then sometimes I would spend so much time that by the time I was ready to shoot, the light was gone. Right. (laughs) I remember one time, it was in Colorado, I was shooting a a little stream, and I had seen a very nice light, and I had a very specific idea about what I wanted to do, and I got the 4x5 out, and this was with Arca Swiss, and it was a monorail camera. This is in 1983. Right. And uh, I got everything set up. I had the composition perfect. I come out from under the cloth. I look, the light was gone. I did not even take the photo. Right. Because there was no point. It was gone. I mean, the scene was dead. You didn't see the Yeah, point. the composition yeah. was good, but the light was gone. Oh. And so I did not even take the photograph. And that was frustrating. Yes. And of course, I did not realize that if I had waited until the next day, it probably would have happened again. But I, I did not have that concept that things happen every day. Right. Pretty that, much the same. That thinking just yeah. wasn't there. So the there, next yeah. day, I... I did not even bother, you know. And, right. And it was interesting because we camped in that campground for a month. So I could have easily waited until the exact same time the next day and the same exact thing would have happened. Oh, sure. But I sure. did not quite understand that. Right. To me, you saw something, you photograph it. That was my approach back then. You know, yes. I had to see it in order to photograph it. I could not quite envision coming back the next day. Right. You know, I mean, today it's like, why didn't I think of that? I mean, it's so logical. You know, the, the sun comes back in the sky the next day, pretty much exactly the same. Oh, yeah. I mean, today I'd be like, oh, no big deal. Yeah. We'll get it tomorrow. We'll get it tomorrow. <laughs> All of that takes time. I know. It does. People are it like, does. oh, why didn't you think of that? Well, uh, because I did not know. It's not innate. It's not something that no. is in my DNA. I wasn't born with it. All of those have to do with understanding the s- movement of the sun in the sky Right. understanding the fact that uh, the sun doesn't move that much from one day to another, you know. Uh, it moves a lot over one year, but it doesn't move much over one day, you know. Right. And so whether you get the shot today or tomorrow, you know, you'll get it if you just wait. But I, I did not have that concept at all. You know, I had to see something and then uh, get it. And I think that also when you work with a 4 by 5 which is very time-consuming, and you put all this work and it doesn't work, you, you tend to get discouraged, you know. Frustrated. Frustrated. Yes, and you, absolutely. Like, I, I don't want to go through that again. You know? Right, yeah. right. It's yeah. such an unpleasant experience. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So things have changed a lot. Right. But it remains the same, which is being a professional means being able to get the shot no matter what. Absolutely. That's the fundamental value here. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of students don't understand when they say, you know, it's difficult today because there's a lot of people is oh. that, A, it was always difficult. Right. It's never been easy. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. <laughs> it was not. just difficult for other reasons. <laughs> yes. And now that we have overcome all of these technical challenges, we have to deal with uh, the crowds. Well, it's just a different challenge. Right. It doesn't mean that you can't get a good photo. It means that you have to approach it differently to solve these new problems. There's always a problem to be solved. Right. That's if it had been earlier, they would have had challenges with their cameras. Because cameras have changed so much since digital as well. Well, you know? people say, you know, if I had been to Antelope Canyon at the time that you went there when nobody was there, <laughs> I could have got these shots. No. 
Yeah, the answer is no, because you would have had to deal with the challenges at the time. Exactly, exactly. There, there's an evolution in photography that has a lot to do with the equipment, you know, the move from film to digital. And there's also a challenge from the fact that photography has become extremely popular and now you have millions of people doing it. But they are just challengers, and the secret of success is to be able to overcome the challenges, whatever they are. And I'm sure that in the future we'll have more challenges, different ones. Right. We are starting now to see uh, challenges that have nothing to do with anything we expected. I mean, being in Antelope Canyon in the beginning, you know, in 86, 87, all of that, meant that you would never be bothered by people. Now, being in Antelope Canyon alone is unthinkable, and uh, we have to deal with that. Back then, you know, if somebody had said, oh, aren't you worried about the crowd? I would have laughed my head off because nobody went in there. Right. <laughs> you know? We wouldn't see you a know? soul. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, who knows what will be there tomorrow? We have no idea what the next challenge is well, going to be. Well, I think, like you said, a professional, they look at the possibilities. Whatever happens, happens. But Well, I think that gonna... the, the number one quality of a professional is problem solving. Yes. That we are going to get the shot no matter what. We're going right. to find the solution, whatever problem is thrown at us. Right. And uh, there's always going to be a challenge. I mean, uh, the Grand Canyon, the challenge was the fact that at sunset, everybody wants to go to this same overlook. Exactly. We call oh, it the cage, you know. You and I saw fist yeah. fights in the parking lot at yeah. Yavapai mm-hmm. uh, Point in the parking lot. Fist fights. Yeah. It's because my there was spot. nowhere to park. Yeah, it's my spot. Right. Get the heck out of there. Absolutely. You know, I was there first. And, and you and I were like looking at, and yeah. we're like, these people are nuts. They you are know, nuts, what is yeah. the matter with them? Yeah, because we you knew know? that if you just park along the road, you just have to hike another half a mile, maybe. And it wasn't even that much. Yeah. Maybe even a quarter of a mile. I mean, it was no big deal. You had the trail right there. Yeah. You just parked and just like cut across. We don't yeah. engage in fist fights. We just park <laughs> where there is a spot. You know? I know. And if you can't park, you just you know walk. You know. Right, right. Uh, but I remember that yeah. uh, Grand Canyon, and that was also in the nineties. Fist fights in the parking lot. And that's you know? not any different today. No. The Grand Canyon is now seeing actually more people. And so I would think that uh, the number of people at the Overlook at sunrise or sunset is larger. Mm-hmm. And it's not exactly like you can find a time of the year where there is nobody. Because one time we went there on January 1st. We did. Because yes. we thought January 1st people are celebrating. There's going to be nobody. There was busloads of Japanese. <laughs> There were. It was unbelievable. I'm like, what are they all doing here? I mean, yeah. shouldn't we be at home celebrating the New Year? Exactly. Oh, no. I yeah. mean, nope. They wanted to be at the Overlook. And we actually For had, sunrise. Yeah. We actually had less yes. space than if we had gone there yeah. on any other day. Oh, I remember we were set up in the dark, you know, and then all of a sudden we're like, what is that? We couldn't believe it. We're like, oh, my goodness. There's a bus. Yeah. A bus. Of, of Japanese stories. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, people poking their head under the dark cloth always, when I use four by five, always. or people looking through the lens, and all of a sudden you have this nose in front of your face. I know because the they're side. looking at you on the other because side because they are trying to understand what you're doing. Uh, I had to tell them, you know, this is a private spot. It's just for one person, me. You know, you're not welcome under the cloth. I mean, you know? sometimes I and had, then they would look at it yes. and say, "Oh, it's all upside down. It, something's broken." Okay, let's move on. Yes. It's okay. You don't have to worry about that. I'll take I care. I remember of it. you. You were working in all of this chaos, and you would say, "I'm working." Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you, you may be goofing off you and know? you may be on vacation, but this is work for me. I right. need this shot in order to sell and it. And sometimes I had to get very close to you and not bump you when you were photographing with a 4 by 5 but I had to barricade you in, like hold one railing with my left hand and the other railing with my right hand and kind of barricade you there so that nobody would be doing all of those silly things. Or wherever you had the lens, they didn't even know what you were composing and they would get right in front of it, take their camera and just shoot in whatever direction they thought yeah, that you that, were that's, That has always amused me because they have no idea what lens I'm using <laughs> yes. and they have a camera with a fixed lens. But oh. if they point it in the same yes. direction that I'm pointing yes. my lens, yes. somehow they'll get the same shot. You know? right. But, you know, yeah. I never let any of that bother no. me because I'm a professional. My goal is not to go here and have an argument with these people. My goal is to go here and get the shot. Oh, and I remember us photographing along Grand Canyon and remember the uh, quick loads? The quick loads, yeah. Oh, goodness. I remember one time you were having a heck of a time. The clips kept falling off, and so you would lose the exposure, right. and it would happen again and again and again. But you know what? You got the shot. You know what I mean? In all of this difficult situation, clips flying, losing these exposures because the light had hit them, and just not quitting, not quitting. Yeah, you have to have that attitude. You can't uh, let any of that disturb you because you're going to miss the shot. Right. And you have to have that value ingrained in your mind that you want to get the shot regardless. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one time we carried the ball 4 by 5 and it fell. Yes, it did. And uh, one of the springs on the back, you know, it's a spring loaded back, came off. And so the back would no longer be attached to the camera on one side. Right. And I used a shoelace to tie it together. And I was wondering if it would work because obviously there's no spring. And it worked. I got the shot and we started selling the shot. So And that was the first day of our trip. And we still had like a week to go. So we had to fix it, yeah. make sure the light wasn't leaking in there. Yeah, and it's a long trip from Canyon de Chez to Grand Canyon, and so we had to make it work somehow. We couldn't go to a camera repair shop, there is none. No. And even if I found one, it probably wouldn't have the part. So, you know, the challenges are different today. I mean, we have people that still have problems with their cameras, but uh, I think to me the difference between an amateur and a professional is that the professional is going to find a solution somehow. Yes, you know? yes. And I always tell participants, all of the things that you don't want to happen to you will happen when the light is at its best, when the (laughs) shot is the most incredible. When the horses are running by. (laughs) When you have everything perfect, all of a sudden you run out of batteries or... Your Your card's full. Your card is full (laughs) or somehow, you know, the camera doesn't want to work for one reason or another. Right. And what do you do? Well, today the solution is to have a second camera. And and just forget about that one. We'll fix it later on. Just move on, use the other one, and uh, get the shot. I mean, just recently on the last Antelope Canyon workshop, we ran into Waterholes Canyon, and I had taken the Fuji X100, which is very small and light, and I like to use it uh, handheld. And the first shot that I did in the canyon, the camera battery died. And I did not take the spare because I had checked the battery before the hike, and it said full. Oh, so you didn't even take another one? I did one, not take a like, spare oh, battery. I'm all set. Well, yeah, it, it right. said full. There was three bars out of three. And I don't know what happened. Maybe all of a sudden it just drained itself. And now I don't have a camera. Well, I had the iPad, so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to use the iPad. Right. Because that's the only other camera I have. And, of course, it's not the same resolution. It's not the same quality. But you know what? I can still get a shot. Right. And I actually got a very nice photograph 
of uh, a single little dry plant that I actually cleaned up in Photoshop and made it work. And I really like it. You cleaned it up a lot. Yeah. I saw the original and then yeah. the final, and yeah. it, the transformation is yeah. amazing. But in order to do that, you have to let go of a lot of things. Yes, One of I them agree. is I'm not going to use a professional camera. Why? Because I have no battery. Right. B, maybe what matters is getting the shot, not the camera that you use to get the shot. And C, you know what? Maybe I can't make a 40 by 50 of that thing, but I can make an 8 by 10 or right. a 5 by 7, and that's okay. And so you have to let go of all of that. Those are things that are... Purely and simply psychological? Yes. Of course, you know, if you get hung up on the fact that you want to have a high-resolution photograph, 50 megapixel or whatever, that's it. You'll never get a shot that right. day because the camera is not working. But if you think, oh, okay, you know, well, it doesn't work, but I have this other one, let's use it. Yes. Uh, why not, right? And it's really about letting go of all these preconceptions. Not every photograph needs to be printed all size. Right. And you can have a good photo that's going to be an 8x10. I mean, a lot of photographers that use 4x5 and 8x10, they made contact prints. <laughs> yes, they did. My first view camera, you know, the Arca Swiss, uh, the monorail, I only shot Polaroid film, type 52, positive immediately in the film. That is, I would get a Polaroid print in the film. It was one of a kind. And they were 4x5, the exact size of the viewfinder on the camera. And I was very happy with them. And so... It did not bother me. I mean, people were like, well, aren't you worried that you can't make enlargements? Well, no. I mean, I wanted to get the feedback in the field immediately. And eventually, uh, I actually made contact negatives of the Polaroids by uh, exposing uh, through the print, you know, in the darkroom. And then with that contact negative, I was able to make enlargements. So there's always a way around it. You know, I could not make very large enlargements, but I'm, I could make some 10 by 15, something like that. Right. Know? So there's always a solution. We just have to let go. You know, we have to think outside of the box and not get stuck into having every photo being high resolution, for example. I mean, how many 40 by 50 can you really hang in your house, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Even if you have a big house, you can only put so many. Exactly. And so a lot of your work is going to end up being relatively small prints. People are like, well, I want to keep the door open in case I want. Yeah, I understand that. But maybe you should keep the door open to having a good shot, even if it's a small one. Mm-hmm. You know, That's more important. Right. And a lot of that becomes very significant when you start to publish. Because uh, in books, even on PDFs, you know, even if you publish on the Internet, the larger an image is going to be is 8 by 10 which is the size of a printed page. Right. And I have actually, uh, in Landscape Photography magazine, I wrote an essay on collecting art, and one of the photos that I use in the essay is the photo of the artist studio, you know, in Carmel Junction. Oh, yes. When we visited that. Right. That's taken with the iPad, and it was printed full page. And I was surprised. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then I thought, well, the light was really good, (laughs) and it was vertical, and, uh, you know, it looks fine. And so does it matter that I did not use uh, medium format, for example, or 50 megapixel resolution? No, it doesn't. It's doing its job. Yes. So that really, to me, says a lot about what the priority is. The priority is to get a good photograph, regardless of the equipment, regardless of the conditions, regardless of the challenges, because that's what's going to stay. That's what we are here to do. We are here to go in there deal with whatever is thrown at us in terms of challenges and come back with a good photograph. Yes, I agree. Yeah, And ideally, we get it uh, in a 100 megapixel resolution and it's fantastic and everything is 
perfect. But in case it doesn't happen, well, you know, we can use a cell phone (laughs) (laughs) and still get something. Right, I agree. And that's growth, you know, because sometimes, like with that photograph that I did uh, when the Fuji X100 died, that photograph actually is not something that I would necessarily have done if the camera had worked. Right. Because... uh, You may not have even seen it. Well, I was looking for things that I could photograph with that little camera. And that was one thing that I could photograph that uh, worked. I knew it worked because there was very low contrast. Uh, there was very few elements. It was not really about detail. And so you started looking for different things to photograph. Yeah, and I started looking for things yes. that would work because right. they were not relying on detail right. since I was not going to get much detail. And I also was looking for things that did not have a very high contrast range because I'm shooting JPEG. Exactly. So I can't manipulate that. You know? Right. And I just had fun. I was relaxing. I mean, you know, the minute your professional camera doesn't work, you start to think differently. You're like, well, I'm not going to get a professional photograph, so, you know, let's just have fun. Let's right. try things just for the heck of it, just to see what happens. Exactly. You let go of the worries. And when I started working on that photograph uh, in Photoshop, I also was not concerned with getting rid of a lot of things because they were low resolution. And somehow the fact that they were low resolution did not give much guilt in terms of getting rid of them. (laughs) It's easier to get rid of things that are low res than things that are high res. I remember you You writing about that. Yeah, Yeah, I wrote an essay about it. Uh, But uh, there's some truth to that. You don't feel the same level of responsibility getting rid of beautiful detail as you do getting rid of things that are sort of uh, hazy or blurry or... It's so interesting. Well, it can't be about detail. And so what I did is remove a lot of the detail. And so I ended up having a photograph that's very, very simple. You know, actually, uh, the title of the essay is Simplicity. And it's about just this dry plant. And it works. It does. I think I probably could print it, you know, 8 by 10, 10 by 15 maximum. But it's not really about the print. You also have to think, well, what do you say to somebody that says, well, you can't make a good print? I say, well, Edward Weston printed all his work in 8 by 10 Right. And that's what he's known for. And nobody ever complained that we can't get a wall-sized photo of his. It's really about letting go. It's about opening your mind, and it's about overcoming challenges. And you see the same in Antelope Canyon. When we came back this year, you know, with all the challenges of the crowds in there, I was able to bring back a very nice collection of images. And one student actually posted a photograph way back, you know, in the days that there was fewer people, and said, today you can't do that anymore. And I posted my collection, and he said, well, Alan can, (laughs) you know. Right, right. And I posted it on purpose because I wanted to, I did not really want to argue with him. I wanted to say, well, I can still do that. Right, and, and it's not over, and you it's know? Not over. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. The place has it's not changed. Different. It's just different. Yeah. But the beauty of the place is still there. Absolutely. The place has not changed. Right, right. What has changed is the conditions that you're in when you go through it. Yes. That's what has changed. Instead of being alone, now we have uh, a lot of people around us. But um, It doesn't mean it's over. The rocks are the same, the colors are right. the same, the light is the same. To some extent... Uh, I now look for things that are different. I shoot high to shoot over people's head, for example. Uh, I can actually use uh, long lenses in there because before long lenses were impossible because you did not have the shadow speed. It made you make such long exposures, you couldn't do it. Now I use long lenses. I also don't really care if everything is sharp or not. It's not necessary. There's nothing that says that everything has to be sharp. 
Right. And so I let go of a lot of things, and that allows me to continue creating photographs that are interesting, that are new, that are different, uh, and that are satisfying. Right. Yeah. I agree. It's really about openness of mind. Yes, it is. Because yeah. that's what leads to creativity. Well, creativity is essentially fueled by lack of fear. Mm-hmm. The worst enemy of creativity is fear of failure. Yes. Or fear of criticism. And if you let go of those two things, you become much more creative. You open the doors to creativity. Right. Yeah. And I really don't care what people say. You know, it's not about that. I'm not doing things because I want people to praise them. I do things because I want to do them for myself, you know, because it's satisfying to do them. Right. And I know that some people will like them, and I know that some people will not like them, so I just let it go. Those that like it won't like it. Those that won't like it won't like it. And it's always been like that. Right. It's just not something new. And that's why I just love teaching Navajo children art because they're not afraid to try new things and to take a chance and they're not afraid of criticism. And even if you don't like it and you tell them, they're just going to smile. Well, you know, their, they just, yeah. you know, it's But like, there's a reason for that, and know? that's in their culture. They're not judgmental. Right. So they don't get criticism. Right. And so that encourages creativity from a very young age. It does. Our culture is highly critical. Yes. And very judgmental. And so children very quickly get exposed to value judgments, criticism, don't do this, do that. There's a right way and a wrong way. You right. Know? And that, I think, hurts their creativity. It does. You know? And uh, with adults, uh, it's even different because over the years, you know, uh, engaging in jobs that are highly uh, specialized, uh, where everything has to be done perfect, they lose that creativity. Because in art, you know, there's really no risk. I mean, even if you do something totally wrong, the worst thing that can happen is people don't like it. You know, it's not going to hurt anybody. Art is not something that is like a bridge, for example. You know, if you design a bridge the wrong way, it's going to collapse. If you design a power plant the wrong way, it's going to blow up. You know, if you design a car the wrong way, it's going to crash, you know. But without, if you design a work of art the wrong way, it's just not aesthetically pleasing or it's not artistically interesting. And that's the worst that can happen is people are going to look at it and say, boo, you know, I don't like it. So really, fear of criticism in art is more or less a personal problem. You're not causing a problem to anybody. Like I tell people, you know, if you buy this work and you don't like it, just return it. You know? <laughs> that's, that's about as bad as it can get. You know? Right. So we put these thoughts in our head that we have to do this, we have to do that in order to be successful, but they are just constructions that we basically create ourselves. So I don't know what else we want to talk about in regards to Antelope Canyon. Well, this conversation on Antelope Canyon was uh, the opportunity to open the door on a discussion of art. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's not surprising because Antelope Canyon is a very, very artistic place. It's a place that has uh, the potential for creating endless works of art. Mm -hmm. Because every time you go there, I mean, we've been in there personally, probably over a hundred times, and you've been in there God knows how many times. And every time we go there, we see something different. We do, yeah. Even though we know the location, we know the rocks, we know where things are, we know the light, there's always something different. There's always another way of looking at it, another thing that you haven't seen. Mm -hmm. It's very complex as a location. It is. And I never tire of it. No, I don't tire of it either. I really enjoy it. It's still one of my favorite places to go. I don't care if there's more people in there or not. I just 
I look at it from a totally different perspective. I'm looking for different things, and well, it's enjoyable. It is. Regardless, I just want it. I just enjoy being there. Yeah, you know. And we wouldn't. I mean, it's beautiful. It's great colors, beautiful mm-hmm. light. It, it's very peaceful. Mm-hmm. And especially in lower, you go around the corner, and then you see this beautiful light. To me, sometimes it just takes my breath away. I'm just like. That is just so beautiful. It's mesmerizing, you know. In a way, it just surprises you when you come around a corner. Or I tell people that are on the workshop with us, I keep telling them, "Come back here and back up into the shadow and look at what I'm looking at, and look how beautiful this is above us." Right. To me, I never tire of that. Yeah, it's a mesmerizing place. To me, it's a magical place. It is a magical、um, place, yeah. And I, I will always see it that way. And the other thing is that we've looked for other slot canyons, and we found quite a few other slot canyons. I mean, there's many of them in the Escalante. There's many of them around Page. There's the Buckskin Gulch. There is、uh, all of the canyons、uh, around the area, canyon. you know, the Paria, you know, all of that. But、uh, there's only one Antelope Canyon. Yes. Even though we've been to. Who knows how many others? There's none that have the richness of Antelope Canyon、right. in terms of the variety of shapes, the light, the colors. I mean, I don't know of any other place that has the colors of Lower Antelope, for example. Oh yes,、yeah. I agree. And they're so vivid. It's、yeah. just there's something about that rock that really reflects the light in ways that are unlike any other place. Oh yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And so a lot of people are like, well, you know, I don't want to go because、uh, there is.、Uh, A lot of people, or it's difficult to access. Well, I understand, but there is a reason why there is all these people. It's one of the wonders of the natural world. Oh、literally. yes, I mean, I can tell you as many times as I've been there. It doesn't matter if it's lower or upper. When our tour guide is getting ready to take us in, I get excited. Right. You know, whether it's descending the ladders or、yeah. just walking into upper and feeling that cool air that's coming out as I'm walking in. I just love it.、Yeah. I never get tired of it. Well, to say I don't want to go because there is a lot of people is like saying I'm not going to go to Notre Dame or I'm not going to visit、uh, Saint Peter of Rome. I'm not going to go to the Eiffel Tower. I'm not going to go to yeah to the Eiffel <laughs> Tower. I'm I'm not going to see this or that because there's a lot、mm-hmm. of tourists. There's a reason why there's a lot of tourists. They are unique places. They are one of a kind. Yes. I mean Venice. You know, it doesn't matter how many people are in Venice. It's always going to be magical. You have to deal with the fact that these places are popular for a very good reason, and that's very unique.、Mm-hmm. They are just incredibly beautiful and unique and mesmerizing, and everybody wants to see them.、Mm-hmm. And the fact that there is a lot of people and everybody is taking a photograph doesn't mean that a lot of people are getting good photographs. Most of them are not. And、uh, they still need professionals like us or the students that we teach to go in there and be able to bring photographs that are truly spectacular, unique, incredible, outstanding, beyond the ordinary. Right. Because what we have now is、uh, a lot of photographs of Antelope Canyon that are probably way better than what most people could do before, but they have become ordinary. Yes, because that's the new standard. You know, it, the、it's、bar、higher. has been raised.、No? Yes,、yeah. the bar has been raised.、Yeah. Yes,、so、the, I agree. The bottom level is much higher than it was. You know, when we started going there, but the ability to bring out a photograph that is totally extraordinary, superior to what everybody else does, is still there, and、mm-hmm. it's a challenge. And in order to overcome that challenge, you have to approach it from a professional level and not be disturbed by the situation, and just focus on getting a photograph that、uh, will impress everybody else. Right.、Know? 
and not discount what can be done in post-processing because a lot of the things that are problems can be solved. You know? Even if you have people in the shot, even if you have uh, things that you don't want, they can be removed. We had people when you were photographing 4 by 5 and doing long exposures. They would walk into the frame. We just kept telling them, just keep moving. As long as you keep moving, by the time the exposure is done, we knew that they wouldn't even be in the well, image. Well, because the exposure was long, yeah. Exactly. But if they were captured in the photograph, I couldn't remove it. Right. But what yeah. I'm saying is is that yeah. we had that problem of people walking into yeah. an exposure well, years ago when we were yeah. doing 4 by 5 And, and there's always, always going to be challenges. Always, yeah, but yeah. they think it's a thing that's just happening nowadays because there's so many more people. Well, when there were fewer people, there were still people walking yeah. into the frame. <laughs> there's always something to be learned. Yes. There's, yes. And what needs to be learned is how to overcome the challenges that you have to face at the time that you photograph. And right. today's challenges are different, but there's a way to overcome them, and uh, that's what we teach. So what we teach today is very different than what we taught in the beginning. Yes. Because the challenges are different, you know, yes. but there's still yeah. things to learn. And what we do is we also teach them coping skills, I think, to right. some degree. You well, know. Yeah, not let the crowds disturb you. Yeah. Which we learn at the Grand Canyon. Yes. I you used to, to say that if you can mind. photograph at the Grand Canyon... You know, in one of the popular overlooks, you know, Maver Point, Yavapai Point, Hopi Point, all of those, you can photograph anywhere. Right. If you can manage to get a good photograph at one of the overlooks with the insanity that goes on, you know, people doing all sort of bizarre things in front of you, you've sort of been washed. Oh, you know? I agree. It has basically taught us coping skills that you can take with you anywhere. I can't you know? tell you how many times I say to myself sometimes, Focus and just push it out of your mind. Right. You know, just push that out of your mind and focus. Well, and then you, I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I have to tell myself that sometimes, mm -hmm. but I know that. I'm like, just push it out. Focus on what you're doing. Right. Well, your skills, whatever they are, are the same when you are into a crowd bothering you, making it difficult to take a photo than they are at home when everything is perfect and right. you're by yourself. You have the exact same skills. The thing that has changed is all these people that are bugging you because they are around you and they are pushing you around and they want to do right. all sort of bizarre things, take selfies, you know, do uh, all sometimes. these ridiculous things. And if you can just tune them off, right. you go back to your skills and you should be able to do just as well as if they were not there. Yes, I agree. That's and the then skill, sometimes you know? I remind yeah. myself, I, what is the goal? Okay, this is yeah. the goal. Focus on it. Push that all out of my mind. Yeah they, yeah, they are not really the problem. The problem is you. It's your inability or your ability, depending on whether you can cope or not, to deal with that. You have to be able to completely, you know, let it go, act as if you're by yourself, and uh, not get into a conflict situation with them. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and then you can do great things. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. You have to I sort agree. of go with the flow, and if you have to work faster, work faster. If you have to let people go in front of you, let them go in front of you. If you have to have people that are really rowdy, just wait until they are gone. Oh, yeah. You know? I do. Yeah. Whatever it <laughs> just takes. Just be you know? patient. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If there is a lot of people in front of you, shoot high. You know? right. Shoot above your head. Yes. Where they are not. Right. That's what I do, and it works. Yes. So... Yeah. All of that to say that there is ways of getting very good photography in Antelope Canyon today. <laughs> Not just <laughs> yesterday, but today. Yeah. And uh, that we continue to offer the Antelope Canyon workshop and that we'd love to have you if you're interested in learning how to do this professionally and how to get good photographs uh, regardless of the conditions. And to have fun. And I mean, enjoy the is, beauty. It's fun. Admire exactly. the beauty of Antelope Canyon as opposed to being... Uh, 
disturbed by the crowd. It will always be magical. Too. It hasn't changed. Yeah. yeah, it hasn't changed. It's yeah. always going to be like that. It's always going to be beautiful. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how many thousands of people go through it. They can't damage the rocks. You know, the rocks are there. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, it's actually more protected today because now that it's a place that is uh, guided, now that we have tour guides, now that we have uh, visitors, there is a responsibility on the part of the Navajo to keep it clean. Yes. You know, and it was not like that before. They you know, take care of it. There used to be graffiti on the walls. They had to sandblast it. There was photographs we couldn't take. With uh, a in black upper. arrow, you know, spray paint. Upper. This way, yeah. In With upper. a huge yeah. arrow just yeah. painted on this beautiful sandstone yeah. wall. Yeah. I remember seeing that, and I was like, who would do that? Yeah, at the entrance. You know? And you could not take the photograph at the entrance because of that spray painting. Well, that and we sandblasted it. It's gone. Yeah. Because now that we guide tools in there, they have to have the place pristine. Well, and that was during film days, too. Yeah. I mean, how do you get rid of that? You, you couldn't. You know? We just did not take that photograph. Exactly. Yeah. We ju- you said yeah. to me, we're just going to go further in. Yeah, forget about it. there's nothing we yeah. can do Let's here. move on. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing we can do. And now it's gone, so we can take that photograph. So, in a sense, it is better today on that level, but there are new challenges, and Mm -hmm. we have to learn how to overcome them, and we know how to overcome them. And so if you're interested in uh, learning how to do it, you know, come with us on... uh, next year's Antelope Canyon workshop, and uh, we'll show you how to do it. And It's a we'll lot sh- of fun. Yeah, we'll show you how to get professional <laughs> photographs regardless of the situation. Yes. And regardless of whatever comes next, because we don't know what comes next. Right. Every year that we've been there, there's been changes. Oh, absolutely. Every, every year it's yeah. different. You know? I just go with the flow. Lower, we used to go from the top down. Now we go from the bottom up. Yes. Well, okay, yes. we'll just look at it the other way. You know? Right. At one point, we used to go from the top down and then back up. And now it's just from the bottom up and off you go. It's over. You know, you just go through it once. So there's always going to be changes. And And you uh, have to be open. Yeah. But the beauty is there. It is. And uh, the opportunity to create unique images that cannot be done anywhere else is there. And that's uh, the magic of Antelope Canyon.